Good morning, everybody. Thank you, Rachel, for introducing me. So just as just a disclaimer today, I am uh, a little sick, so um, I apologize ahead of time if I have to like grab a sip of water or like slow it down. But I'm going to do my best to get through uh, this message. And honestly, like when you're weak like that, I mean, you can only lean on the Lord more, so you're not really at a disadvantage. Um, but uh, yeah, so happy Mother's Day to everybody. Um, it's really awesome to celebrate moms, but just women in general. Uh, I just want to give a shout out to just, yeah, all the moms that are with Renew that are core members here. We really appreciate the ways that you guys serve and bless the congregation. And um, yeah, we just learned so much from you and we're really appreciative of you guys. So thank you so much for that. So in Renew tradition, um, we're actually going to start with a question. Or oh, wait, do I have a question first or do I have the... Hold on. Yes. Uh, here's a question to discuss. Um, in two or threes, and this is one of the most important parts of um, the service because you get to meet maybe a new neighbor. Um, you get to hear the story maybe or introduce yourselves. But the question is, when have you felt rejected before? Um, it can be in social circles, relationships, family, friends, whatever it might be. So just turn to a neighbor or two. Um, introduce yourself if you don't know each other and share and I'll bring you guys back in a few minutes. So feel free to break off. Okay, everybody, uh, we're going to bring it back right now. I hope you enjoyed each other's rejection stories. Um, so I'm going to share mine really briefly. Um, so my, my heaviest rejection um, was actually from... A piece of paper, and what I mean by that is it was a rejection from dental school, which is my original uh, career path before I switched into ministry. And <clears throat> it might not sound that problematic, like kind of whiny or insignificant, but the reason why it turned into actual real rejection than just my career is because it changed my relationship with my family um, for the longest time. The reason why I thought I was on this earth was to become a dentist, and that was a huge influence from my family, and when it didn't happen, it was pretty much like, you're not part of the family anymore, or like, you don't, you're not worthy to, you know, be a son. Um, so even though it started off as just a simple letter in the mail, um, that turned into a really crippling, uh, you know, relational thing with my parents, and even some friends that have successfully made it through, um, so yeah, that's my rejection story, um, among others. Um, but last time I was up here, I spoke about uh, Treasures in Heaven, which I'm not sure everybody remembers, because to this day I still hear about um, the dolls that I talked about, <laughs> if you guys remember. So like, <laughs> so that was, if you guys weren't here, it was a hobby of, thank you for switching it, not on my cue, but um, so one of my favorite hobbies is, is to collect things for whatever reason, and I collect dolls, but more appropriately, I guess they're like action figures, but I don't think this picture really helps my case, to be honest. There's like a Moana one on the lower left, but um, that's a collection of my dolls, just to confirm that they're not like Barbies or anything, anything creepy. And there's one more, 
Um, so here's a picture of my shelf with more dolls. Um, and I've cut back ever since that message, by the way. So it was a good thing. But uh, if you look really closely, like if you squint, you can see that there's seminary books behind them, as I said, that are like hidden away. There's a, there's a shrink-wrapped Bible that's like gathering dust and unopened. So clearly you can see the influence of... Um, you know, this hobby on my life, but I guess, you know, more appropriately, they're action figures. Um, if you're ever over, I can walk through them, you know, one-on-one, so. Okay. Um, so before we start uh, jumping into the Word, uh, let's pray really quick. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for uh, another day that you've made, another day we can wake up and enjoy you, enjoy a relationship with you, our Father in heaven. And um, just pray for all of those that have come through the doors this morning, um, that you would refresh our souls, that you would meet us here where we are. Whoever has burdens, may you just make them light. Um, may you extend the invitation to <clears throat> all those that need it. Um, and for those of us that have already received that, may you just continue to strengthen our faith. Um, may you just be real to us. Uh, thank you for the book of Matthew. Thank you that we can walk through together as a church. May you bless this time, and may it be about you. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> okay, so we're in Matthew chapter 9, and this is the passage that happens right after, you know, last week's passage, and hopefully if you went to small groups, we covered this a little bit already. But the interesting thing is, this is the part in the story where Matthew actually um, writes about himself. He is traditionally the author of this gospel, and um, here he, he writes about how, Jesus, how he met Jesus. And it's just a really interesting uh, account of that, and what happens there is also very, very powerful. So I'm going to read through verses 9 uh, to 13 right now and follow along if you have your Bibles or your phones. Um, reads this, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The reason why we started off with that question about rejection is because Matthew is a character who knew it very, very well. Um, He was a tax collector, and even though we don't really see that title so much today, um, there are individuals that are still treated in the same way, that have the same negative stigma attached to their title, and tax collector was no exception, especially back then. So why was a tax collector so, you know, rejected, so neglected by society? The reason for this is um, Matthew was somebody who essentially betrayed his own people. He was a traitor. Um, he was somebody who was hired by the Romans, who were, at the time, you know, keeping Israel under martial law. 
and they hired him uh, to essentially cheat and swindle uh, the Jews to give money to the Romans. And he was a Jew himself. So he was somebody who knew the culture, who knew the ins and outs of um, the other Israelites, and that only benefited their enemy, their oppressors, who were the Romans. So number one, he was somebody who was very disloyal. I don't think I would ever want to hang out with somebody or build a strong relationship with somebody who has that characteristic. And also, he was dishonest. Uh, Like I said earlier, he took money selfishly. He built up riches for himself. I'm not sure if you want a friend like that either. So after all these things that he's guilty of, you know, who would like him? Who would hang out with somebody like Matthew? And the answer is probably very few people. Um, he probably didn't have a lot of friends outside of other tax collectors um, in fear that they would be robbed or that he would call the Roman authorities to beat his own friends. And when it comes to family, he probably didn't have a good relationship with them either. Um, when they have gatherings and they have dinners, he was probably the one who wasn't invited because of all the weight and the dishonor that comes with his profession. So think about what kind of toll that must have taken on Matthew mentally. You know, yes, he was rich. Yes, he had resources. But the emotional toll of being hated um, by your own people, merely an employee to the Romans. um, Nobody liked him. Nobody wanted to hang out with him. But the awesome part is as always, is when Jesus steps into the picture. When you read the verse, what does Jesus do? He walks by and he passes by the tax booth and he sees Matthew. He actually notices him. And this is not the first time that Jesus chooses unlikely people to be his disciples. Um, But I will say, though, that among his disciples, Matthew is probably the one where everybody was questioning why he was even part of it. Um, Like, you know, who is this? Why is a tax collector walking among us? Isn't he unworthy to be chosen to be? And he does. The crazy thing is this exact same thing happens in the passages that we looked at previously. Uh, we we seen we've seen very many we've seen a lot of miracles um, with healings with exorcisms. We have, um, for example, the leper who was rendered untouchable by society. We have the demon possessed men who were shackled to a tomb outside of the city, just signaling that they were essentially dead to everybody else. They were left there to die. And what does Jesus do with each of them? He goes out of his way to work on them, to heal them. He doesn't stop by to talk to the person who has the, you know, the most education or the most resources. He goes to the ones that are sick, the ones that are dying. So what do we learn from that attitude that Jesus puts on? It's that he specifically targets the marginalized to interact with them. Those are the highest on his list. He came for that very reason to comfort those that need it the most. And even though Matthew might have been healthy, he might have been rich, um, his soul was still very sick. He was still very selfish. He was still so weighed down by his sin 
Um, and the worst part is that he felt like nobody could ever forgive him. He felt like he was probably unlovable. And yet Jesus was able to fulfill that by calling him into his ministry. That's exactly how Jesus continues to chase us today. It's easy to leave this in the text and be like, okay, so maybe there was that one time that Matthew was a good choice to be a disciple, but you know, today it doesn't really happen. You know, the rejected are rejected. Some of us have been hurt by our experiences with other Christians or, or church. But Jesus' attitude towards the marginalized and those that are weighed down by their sin is no different today. No matter what you have done or what is weighing you down in your past, the, the invitation is still extended to every single person. And that is the beauty of his ministry. That's the beauty of the church that we're called to imitate that exact same attitude. So for some of us that feel like Matthew, who feel like we've done something so, so horrible that is unforgivable, how are we responding to this truth that Jesus has invited you into his family as you are you know you're not expected to polish yourself up before pretend like nothing happened i don't think matthew put away all his papers and hid away all his riches before he followed jesus he had all those burdens with him already but he still chose to follow him how are you responding to that and also like what are some things that might hold you back from surrendering that um What are still some things that you need to let go of in order to say yes to Jesus? And for those of us that have already been experienced with this invitation or already accepted it, how big of an effort are we making to minister to those next to us, our neighbors? Are we being Christ-like to them? Are we noticing those that might be like Matthew who was ignored every time somebody walked by? Who have you dismissed in your life that you felt was unsavable that maybe you need to reignite that relationship? In verses 10 to 13, uh, we see the Pharisees once again introduced, and they're, they've been in the passages for you know chapters now. And it's a really profound section because Jesus describes... Um, you know, he's a, he's a, he describes himself, his role as a physician. And to kind of illustrate what he means by, you know, only the sick need physicians, um, not the well. I'm going to share a brief story related to Mother's Day about my mom um, and how I felt personally very, very helpless and needy at one point. Um, actually, still probably, but... So one of the fondest memories with my mom is um, actually a time when I was very, very physically ill. Uh, I was maybe in middle school, and I had caught pneumonia, which I think is pretty serious for somebody who's younger. Um, And, yeah, I don't think I've ever been so, like, so helpless. Um, I was, you know, feverish, cold sweats, um... You know, at such a young age, I was considering whether I was going to die or not because I was so dizzy and feverish and stuff. 
I was pretty much hallucinating. All the dreams I had made no sense, and I'd always tell them to my mom. And honestly, like, I didn't even have the strength to reach over to my bed st- my nightstand to, like, get medicine for myself. Um, and the awesome thing about my mom is that she always, like, took off work to be with me. And I think that was such a good medicine for her to be by my side to, like, feed me the medicine, which I had trouble taking because I couldn't swallow pills back then. So she would have to break open these capsules, like, stir it with, like, food. It sounds really gross, but, like, applesauce and stuff, and hand-feed it to me. But I needed her so badly. I was fully dependent. And it's been a while since I felt that way. But at that moment, I felt like she was the only one keeping me alive. Jesus' purpose was to seek out the sick. Another analogy I can draw is, what's the point of a doctor going to med school if afterwards he never interacts with sick people? Um, He's only a doctor when he is in hospitals, when he's in areas of people who need it. But if not, nothing makes him a doctor. He's just going to be a person. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying that, The people that I came for are the sinners, are those who know that they're sick and know that they need me. But the biggest problem is that not all of us realize uh, that we are sick. Um, I'm sure it's relatable that there's a lot of barriers that might cover it up well, that prevent us from feeling the symptoms of being spiritually sick. But the prime example of somebody who characterizes that where, you know, I think I'm okay, I'm, I feel pretty good, is the Pharisee. And once again, they, they show up in this passage again. They're looking on with self-righteous judgment in their eyes, as always. And the thing is, Pharisees are very good at keeping the law. Um, they were all about the ceremonial practices, um, fasting, you know, the offerings and all that stuff. They were actually really good at it. But where they missed the mark is the words of men, of men ended up being more important and greater than a love for God first. Um, that's why they were so preoccupied with looking good on the outside and impressing other people when in reality they were missing the reason why they were doing these things, why they were fasting, why they were doing all these rituals. And it's so easy for us to accuse the Pharisees as being the bad guys. Um, They are, you know, if you were to read through all the gospel, you say, you know, the enemy is definitely the Pharisees because Jesus always has to teach them, always has to rebuke them and put them in their place. But, honestly, there's a piece of that in every single person as well. Um, there's a Pharisee inside of me, and I know that for a fact because um, I'm kind of learning the hard way right now uh, in ministry. Um, so I switched, you know, from healthcare to ministry, but a big part of that was oh, okay, if I'm in ministry, nobody's going to question my spirituality. Everything I do is for the church, it's for God. You know, I'm this holy person, and I'm even fooling myself of that too. But to be honest, uh, you can read 
I mean, you saw the thickness of some of those books, like thousands of pages. You can read that. Oh, and by the way, it's ridiculous how in the syllabus they can just ask you in a week to just read like a thousand pages as if it's doable, which is not. So you skip some of it sometimes. Uh, but, but you can read a thousand pages of you know, theology, Christian ethics, and all that stuff. And you can complete your assignments on time. You can get a good grade. But it could do nothing for your relationship with Jesus. It could do zero. And that's kind of shocking, but it seems not to make sense. Like, isn't that the reason why I'm doing all this stuff? To feel closer to God, to learn more about him, and build that relationship? And yet, there's that detachment. Also, another thing is when I do my references for research papers, the Bible becomes just another book in my stack. Um, you know, I'm, I'm citing it. It's just, you know, purpose-driven life, you know, strength to love, discipline of a godly man, and then Bible, and then you just keep on going. Um, you know, I can't at least stop for a second and realize how important this specific reference is. But for a seminary student, or even for somebody who loves the word, it can just become another book. And my last confession is to the college ministry that I lead on Fridays. There's times where I prep or I lead worship. And, you know, I question whether I'm doing that. I'm compelled to do it because of a love for God. Or is it just because, oh, you know, these students need to be fed. Um, you know, let's just serve in that way. Does it come from a love of God first? This type of pharisaical behavior alters the way that we treat uh, other people and God himself. Um, sorry. One of the biggest symptoms of having this mindset of so much knowledge, you know, you feel like your head's going to explode with just like how much you know about God um, it can be judgment on other people. Uh, I know that when I first moved to SoCal from Berkeley, I did the whole church hopping thing, and there were times where I walked into a church and I just was not feeling it because, you know, the worship wasn't good. I'm like, you know, you only got, like, one mildly talented guitarist and your, <laughs> and your vocalist is, like, so-so. I know, it's not, it's hor- it actually is horrible. Um, it's bad. You're allowed to criticize that. Um, and I walked down, like, oh, that worship was just so unworthy. Like, you know, and, and these are, like, you know, close to actual quotes that I was thinking in my head. But that's so ridiculous, right? Like, who can walk in and say that this church isn't worshiping authentically? Like, this is the way that they've been led to praise God and... I'm the one at fault because of that, that mindset. Um, they're guilty of nothing, but for me, guilty of much. But a worse symptom of having this perspective of judgment is you're no longer reliant on God anymore. You know, somebody comes up to me and tries to rack my brain about, you know, questions about theology and stuff. There's been times where I just say, you know, there's... There's a book for that. Or even for myself, oh, I wonder what, you know, what, what the answer to this question is about God or 
these different theological points. Oh, there's a book for that too. And it's on my shelf and I don't have to pray about it. I don't have to consult God who actually would be able to speak some wisdom into that. You become so self-sufficient in your knowledge that Jesus has no place anymore in your life. When I first started school here, my friend, upon hearing that I was you know, pursuing ministry, he sent me a book. And the book was called How to Stay Christian in Seminary. And at first I thought it was a joke because it's like there's no way this book can be called that because I'm going because I'm Christian and I want to be, you know, deeper and deeper. But now that I'm at the halfway point, I realize why this book exists. And the reason why is because it's hard to stay Christian in seminary. It's so tough because you just get numb to it. All the papers that you write, all the things that you read, you know so much about God, and then you realize that you actually don't know him because you forgot to have a relationship first. And it's so tragic how you can miss that. The real kind of zinger that Jesus uses against the Pharisees is in verse 13. He says, go and learn what this means. Basically saying that you should know what this means, but it, it, clearly you guys don't, so... Let me quote it for you again. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And this is actually an Old Testament reference from Hosea 6.6. 6. You might have that subnote um, or the footnote on your, on your Bibles. At the time, Hosea, which is one of the minor prophets, he's basically talking about how offerings became so pointless, um, you know, the service, the sacrifice. It was originally supposed to illustrate how nasty and ugly sin was. Um, but at that point, it was just like, oh, you know, like, you know, it's time to sacrifice to God. Let's bring out a lamb, get it done, and then move on with our day. It's just a routine thing. But have we forgotten that God actually wants steadfast love and mercy first before our service, before our sacrifice. He doesn't need another cow. He doesn't need another lamb. But what he desires in us is transformation. If we're about pleasing God and and paying attention to what he wants in us, shouldn't we pay more attention to that first? But in, in saying this, Jesus tells the Pharisees that you guys put so much weight on the law, on, on what's on the outside, the ceremonial practices, and... You have no heart for God. That's, that's a problem. I'm going to go through verses 13 to 17 really quickly. Um, I'm not going to unpack everything in it, but basically the Pharisees judge the disciples now. First they judge Jesus for sitting with tax collectors and sinners, and now they're moving on to what the disciples are quote-unquote doing wrong. And it reads this, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, why do we and the disciples and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. 
Neither is new wine put into old wine skins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wine skins, and so both are preserved. There's a lot of wordplay in there, a lot of comparisons. But basically, Jesus is reinforcing the fact that, you know, the, the practices that you guys do in the gospel that I'm trying to preach, they're not compatible. Um, there's no place in my kingdom for purposeless, heartless acts merely for service without a heart for God first. And what really kind of gets me thinking about this passage is, isn't it crazy how the Pharisees miss this, even though the person that they're supposed to be fasting for and supposed to be worshiping is right there in front of them. Um, Jesus, they don't realize that they need Jesus. They don't realize that they need forgiveness, that they're desperate for him. He's standing right there, and they're arguing about who's right. Are there moments where we fail to see Jesus even though he's right in front of us? And, you know, the Pharisees were so hardened, and they would constantly miss it. Um, they would constantly condemn Jesus' behavior, deeming it, you know, inaccurate to the law, um, criticizing the disciples for their practices, and yet Jesus standing right there, the one that they need, the one that came to save them, and the self-righteousness still got in the way. These passages remind us of two very significant aspects of who Jesus was. First, in the part with Matthew, he's so committed to noticing and inviting those that are on the outside of society, the sinner, um, those that were rejected. He's so good at that. And the cool thing is that it didn't follow this scale of, oh, you've done this much or you've done this little. It was just come as you are. So no matter what category you send in or what, you know, how badly um, you might have offended God, the invitation was still open. And the second one with the Pharisees is that he rebukes those that are righteous. Um, he humbles those that are overly proud. And I think that's why in James, really quickly, um, he talks about how teachers are held to a high standard because you have so much knowledge and you, you, you have to wield that well. And if you don't, um, then you're kind of held accountable for that. You know, I don't know where everybody is when it comes to these two categories of, of Matthew feeling unworthy to follow Christ or the Pharisees um, feeling like they don't need Christ. Or maybe it's a little bit of both for you guys. But the most important thing is in your pursuit of Christ, in your pursuit of Jesus, in that relationship, that you don't miss him. Because it's always, he's always going to be the best part of the faith, is that you get to be a child. You get to be a son or a daughter of the Lord. And clearly it's so easy to miss that, no matter how much you know, no matter you know how long you've been going to church. At the end of the day, that's 
irrelevant if you don't enjoy God as the Father first. We're all pretty unworthy, to be honest, to to be part of Jesus' family. Uh, We all have a time where we are Matthew, where he hasn't found us yet, where we're seeking forgiveness. But that's what makes the gospel so beautiful, is that through Christ, we can know God. We can restore a relationship with him and that there is forgiveness of sins. Um, Matthew was forgiven. All his disciples were forgiven. The same applies today in the current state of the Christian faith, and it always will. And the best thing about it is that we don't have to earn it. We don't have to do it by our own merit. We don't have to, you know, do a certain amount of things in order for Jesus to love us back. The Bible teaches that grace, God's grace is a free gift. It's a matter of just opening your hands and receiving that as you are. So when we finish the book of Matthew, which maybe like 20 years from now, um, no, it's probably more like a year and a half. My hope and my prayer for this church is that everybody is still with us. Um, And the reason why is because even though we're kind of like not even in the middle of the book yet, Jesus' journey is so directional. It's it's moving towards the cross. And as we continue working through this book, I don't want you guys to miss the part where, and, you know, we all, for the most part, know how it ends, but as a church, um, it's just going to be such an awesome time to walk with Christ as he goes to the cross and experience his resurrection as we study this on Sunday. And I just think it's going to do awesome things for the church um, in terms of just how we bond with each other, the prayer, the passion for worship, all of that. Um, Yeah, ultimately just... As somebody who who wants to do this um, for the rest of my life, when I realized how sad it was that I could miss the most important thing despite doing so much... Uh, it was pretty devastating. Uh, I never questioned whether I wanted to do it or not anymore, but it got me thinking about, hmm, where am I at with this? Where is everybody else at with this? Um, you know, is is God actually real to me? Like, am I doing this because I love him first? And And really the only way out of that is to be introspective, spend time in the Lord examining yourself where you are with it before you even, you know, pick up a pen to journal or before you start another book. Um, always keep it about God first. And, you know, our, our foundation has to be established in that way before we do anything. Um, yeah. Uh, let me pray. Uh, Wilson's going to come up and uh, talk us through communion, but I'm going to pray us out really quick. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the richness of your word. Um, Yeah, there's just so many details that we can miss. Even though we know this book, we know you inside out, Lord, there's always so many mysteries. There's always so much more that we have to do. Um, And God, we forget you so often, even though we do so much. And we don't want it to be like that. We want it to be 
fulfilling spiritually. We want to be able to say that I'm doing this for you, and because of that, I'm doing it for others. Yeah, go easy on us when we mix it up, Lord, because it happens all the time. It happens for those of us in ministry. It happens for those of us that aren't. Um, but ultimately, Lord, we just desire you in a relationship with you. Um, so may you continue to walk with these brothers and sisters. May you continue to humble us when we get proud. Um, yeah, we just thank you for being such a great God and, and just holding our hand throughout all of this, whether it's difficult or whether it's easy. Thank you, Lord, for this Sunday service. Thank you for this church. In Jesus' name, amen.